When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Blissoma. Blasoma offers healthy, sustainable personal care products that are intelligently designed, deeply supportive of the human body, and that help their clients address and improve complex skin challenges in a holistic way. You should be buying skincare from a brand that is clear and honest and committed to making sure you're receiving the right products for your unique skin needs through healthy ingredients, ethical business practices, and value. I'm all about value. I've been especially enjoying their Good Earth Exfoliant Powder. It's a face mask that actually comes in powder form. You add a little bit of water, and it is a gentle exfoliant that leaves your skin with the nicest glow from this turmeric and natural antioxidants. You can use the code ECOCHIC at blasoma.com for 20% off their Defend Ecosystems product line. Again, that's blissoma.com, B-L-I-S-S-O-M-A dot com, and the code is ECOCHIC. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hi, everyone. Welcome. My name is Laura Diaz, and I am really happy that you're joining us for today's episode. I am deeply honored to be joined today by the one, the only, Aaron Brockovich. Aaron Brockovich is an American legal clerk, consumer advocate, and environmental activist who, despite her lack of education in the law, was instrumental in building a case against the Pacific Gas and Electric Company of California in 1993. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this case because we do speak about it a couple of times during today's conversation, and it's a case that you may already be familiar with because Aaron's story was told through a film titled Aaron Brockovich, released in 2000. Erin was portrayed by Julia Roberts as she fought against the energy corporation again, PG&E. She was connecting the dots and figured out that there was this massive public health crisis happening in the town of Hinkley, California, because the energy corporation was contaminating the groundwater with hexavalent chromium, which is a chemical that prevents rust in pipes, and they were using it for their natural gas compressors at this energy corporation. Julia Roberts received an Academy Award for Best Actress, as well as a BAFTA, Golden Globes, Screen Actor Guild Award, multiple critics awards. The film itself, Aaron Brockovich, was nominated for Best Picture. It was directed by Steven Soderbergh, a name you may be familiar with from the Oceans film franchise. This is a fabulous movie. I love the early 2000s. I love Julia Roberts. Maybe I'm a little biased, but this is also a film that was recommended to me at least once every semester throughout college and graduate school because Erin Brockovich is a fighter. She is sharp. She knows what's right, and she's not afraid of being herself and shaking up this kind of stale law office or this big corporation. Anyway, the wildest part is that the real Erin Brockovich has said that the movie is about 98% accurate. Erin began an investigation in 1993, she was a legal clerk, into the health impacts of the groundwater contamination, again in Hinkley, relating to this hexavalent chromium. And she found hundreds of people in this tiny town who had serious health implications that could be tied back to hexavalent chromium. A class action lawsuit about the contamination was settled in 1996 for $333 million, the largest settlement of a class action lawsuit in U.S. history. In 2006, PG&E agreed to pay an additional 
$295 million to settle cases involving another 1,100 people statewide for hexavalent chromium-related claims. I mean, this is a story that I've heard before and a story that I've read about before, and every time I read it, I'm like, I cannot even believe this is real life. And this was Aaron's real life that became a film. Aaron and I today are speaking about her new book, Superman's Not Coming, our national water crisis and what we the people can do about it. This is actually Aaron's first reckoning with the conditions of our planet, her long-awaited book. She makes it super clear why we're in trouble, what's going on with our groundwater, and in large practical ways what each of us can do to take action to bring about change, particularly focused on water, but I think they're tips that you can really use in any sort of battle that you are fighting. Erin knows that she can't fight all the battles for all of the people and gives us, the readers, tools to take action ourselves and have our voices heard in our respective communities, and it gives us some basis to know whether or not the water that we're using and drinking in our communities is safe. I read a fair amount of science books, and I would say books in general, I'm a reader, but I must say that Superman's Not Coming is probably the most approachable book that I've picked up in a very long time, if not ever. It's interesting because it's a science-based book. Erin is teaching about different chemicals and about the EPA and case studies of different cities, but it's written as a narrative. It's like Erin herself is speaking directly to you. And the other thing I love about this book is that the goal is truly to arm you, the reader, to go out and make change for your community. At the end of every chapter, there is this little gray box of action items of what you need to be doing next if you suspect x y or z is going on in your community's water supply i'm excited to share this conversation with you because aaron and i cover a lot of ground today and it's a conversation that left me with this like pep in my step for the whole day we do speak about the film and the influence that it's had on her career and we speak about hinkley and the response and we also talk about what you should be watching out for today chemicals like pfos pfoa the largest emerging contaminants in our water Even relating to that chemical we've already heard about, hexavalent chromium, chromium chromium-6, about two-thirds of the American population has tap water with unsafe, potentially harmful levels of hexavalent chromium already in it. So what happened in Hinkley could truly happen anywhere. And that's what Aaron's whole career has been based on, fighting for people and learning their stories and meeting these communities. And throughout the book, Aaron refers to specific people in specific communities all around the country, Poughkeepsie, New York, Hamlin, Missouri, Satellite Beach, Florida. And it's incredible how connected she is to these people's stories and what we can all learn from them and from each other. All around, the takeaway message is that you truly do have the power to stand up for your health and for your family and for your community. You have a seat at the table. And Erin Brockovich is cheering you on. I hope you're subscribed to Eco Chic wherever you listen to your podcast so that you never miss an episode. You can also rate and review Eco Chic on Apple Podcasts and get in touch with me on social media at Eco Chic Podcast. Links for everything are always in the show notes if you'd like to chat. With that, let's get into today's conversation. I can't wait anymore on public health, water, advocacy, what happens when Julia Roberts plays you in a critically acclaimed film. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the iconic Aaron Brockovich. I would love to open up with the obvious that everyone I'm sure is curious to know, and that's about the movie, and I'm sure that you get asked this every single day of your career, but I'm curious to know a little bit about how Aaron Brockovich, the film, impacted your career, because you do talk about it a little bit in the opening chapter of the book, and I think that the film itself was a very pivotal moment for a lot of people, environmental advocates or not. So on an individual level, just 20 years looking back, how did that film really impact the course of your career? It did then, and it continues to do so today. 20 years in the future, we'll still talk about the film, and we are, and it's still on TV. And every time, I'm like, how'd that happen? I don't know. I'm glad that it did. There's many aspects to it. There's my personal side to it. Um, You know, when the film came out, I'm like, I wasn't sure where I fit in. What genre am I in? You know, I'm certainly not an actress. I'm definitely not a part of Hollywood. Wait a minute. I'm not part of academia. (laughs) Where do I belong? And through that process is really where I've developed my self-learned, self-love course of action that 
we need to take that we oftentimes leave out. But the movie was an excellent platform to raise an issue that not only was happening in Hinkley, but happening everywhere else. And at the time I did Hinkley, I didn't even realize that myself. And then after the film, the floodgates opened. So it, it's a great thing. I don't know. I really can't say anything bad about the film, Julie Roberts, Albert Finney. And, and it made it personal, if you will. We were talking about that earlier, that somebody else can do it. I, I listened to comments when I went to the theater from people leaving and they'd go, God, I wonder if that could be happening to us. And then someone else saying, you know what? I could do what she's doing. And I mean, this is exactly what I wanted to, to hear. I think it made my career. It, it was the platform. It was the launching pad. Wow. That's incredible. Well, I think what's also extremely interesting about the way that the film impacted people, like you mentioned, what happened in Hinkley could be happening anywhere. And I read a little bit more about it. And I read in your intro that you had the same issue with the PG&E electric company, electric corporation in other cities. And there were plenty of other cities that were being impacted by the same issues that were happening in Hinkley. And you also mentioned in your book that two thirds of the American tap water system is contaminated to some degree, to some extreme degree, correct me if I'm wrong, please. But I'd love to know a little bit more about that reckoning that now you've been approached by people over the last 20 years about how do I impact my community and how do I find out if my tap water is safe? How do I find out if they're testing for things or if I'm being impacted by this corporation? So now that people have started to approach you about their own communities and their own concerns, what has that, what has that looked like? Overwhelming from the day the film came out. I never thought we'd see a hundred thousand emails, not only from this country, but from Australia and France and Greece and Italy and South Africa, everybody with water issues, hexavalent chromium problems throughout all these countries, let alone that I would be on a journey of learning about perfluorooctanoic acid and TCE and benzene and PCE and firefighting foam and ammonia and bacterias and learning that water that is life we know so little about it's hard to get a story out about it because it has to be a sound bite that moment of sensationalism and water and pollution or the lack of water or climate change isn't a sound bite it's a story and it's going to be all of our stories and so all of that you know came with the film and I just hit the ground running and it became a calling, a passion, certainly overwhelming. To this day, I'm overwhelmed with the number of people that are contacting me. Uh, Flint, Michigan, the moms contacted me a year before Flint became what you know it to be. Uh, The moms of Hannibal, Missouri contacting us that had lead levels as high as Flint, but for a different reason. Um, moms on the rise with the, the PFOA, which is the Teflon, and the PFOS, which is the firefighting foam in upstate New York, and, and their call to action and their children marching at the governor's office with a placard card around their neck of their PFOA blood levels. I'm like, is this what we've come to? And yet we still don't talk about it. We are now. But over the course of 20 years, even to today, I am overwhelmed with the amount of emails that I get about water pollution and beyond that, about moms who are upset that their children are sick or the neighborhood is sick or the school is sick and that we continue to make a disassociation between what we've done to water, the pollution of it, chemicals in it, and our health and welfare. I think that's an excellent segue to... PFOS and PFOAs. So if someone has never heard of these acronyms before, how would you very basically explain them? First of all, (laughs) PFOA, perfluorooctanoic acid, did take me about a month to learn to pronounce. (laughs) We all know it as Teflon. So PFOS, uh, it is part of the PFOA family. It's, uh, you would know it as a firefighting foam. 
So 3M created a family of chemicals. They're the PFCs, and they include the Teflon, PFOA, and the firefighting foam, PFOS, Scotchgard. I mean, they're in virtually almost everything we use. And this is the largest leading emerging contaminant in our water supply today. We were even in Satellite Beach, Florida on PFOS issues. And a doctor caught that with a lot of students with cancer. So, you know, medicine is starting to recognize patterns. So we were out in Satellite Beach before we came down and dealt with the toxic algae blooms in Florida. Again, another big water issue. But the PFOS is everywhere. And, and here's kind of what happened. It's not kind of what happened. This is exactly what happened. And this is where we talk about knowledge is power and how the EPA system works. 3M notified EPA decades ago that this chemical, PFCs, which again is your PFOA and your PFOS, is a bad actor. You need to keep your eye out on it and it's not easy to get out of the environment. So noted, the EPA creates a guideline, which is not an MCL, which is a law. It's a guideline that municipalities can suck this in up to 400 parts per trillion. These numbers always fascinate me. So if it's actually at 399 parts per trillion, you don't have to report it. But at 401 parts per trillion, you do. What's the difference? I mean, I don't want to drink it at 399 parts per trillion or 400 parts per trillion. So I'm often intrigued with the numbers and we could talk about that into the future. But I think this is what people miss because when we start talking about science, most of us glass over. We're like, oh, I don't under, you know, that's complicated. It's chemistry. And it is, I've been racking my brain for 20 years and I will rack it for 20 more years and you're constantly learning. So they create this guideline and off we go. Once that happens, EPA commissions studies, which they've commissioned studies for a lot of chemicals. That's how we know about TCE and PCE and benzene and all these other chemicals. We forget though about 40,000 hit the marketplace of which EPA can only study a few a year because it costs millions of dollars and science takes time. You know, these chemicals have latency periods. You could drink them for 20 years before you even get sick and it takes science that length of time to find out what it really does in the environment and to people. So long story short, about four years ago, maybe five now, it's going to be about four. This is what I say. Science caught up with policy. And they found out that this chemical causes lots of cancer. And so they notify the EPA, who now has to take that guideline from 400 parts per trillion to 70. Many states took it lower. CDC is probably going to even take it lower. And I'm looking at this going, what an ass backwards system. Why would I, as an EPA, not say to a manufacturer, you're going to show me the studies first before this is allowed into the marketplace. And we have a disaster with it getting into aquifers and municipalities and exposure to public health. That's a perfect example of one chemical and how the system works that, that we really need to redesign. Right, and I think it's interesting that you mentioned the EPA does things a little backwards depending on what's getting into the water and depending on who is even bringing up these issues because you're saying 3M in the first place was the one that said, you know, we might have something going into the water system. So when we think about the way that the EPA regulates certain chemicals. I also thought that was an interesting point that you made in the book was that if the EPA is only making guidelines, that's not enforceable. And that's not setting any sort of proper regulation on what's getting leaked into our groundwater systems. So you also mentioned the Safe Water Drinking Act. There still is so much that is lacking in terms of environmental regulation and public health. So just briefly, I would love to talk a little bit about like the holes that are in the EPA and the holes that we think about when we're talking about regulation for our groundwater systems. What is not being properly regulated and, and why is that? 
Well, the Safe Drinking Water Act was created in the 70s, actually under the Nixon administration. And it was all good and well intended. And I think over the years, for a whole host of reasons, it's been hijacked, if you will. It's money factors, it's science, it's delays. I think the association with the chemical industry, the chemical lobbyists um, have huge power, huge yielding power. Oftentimes the EPA has to consider, you know, what the cost is to a company. They'll go in and create Superfund sites. They, the EPA will sue the company for money for cleanup. Where the ball got dropped, we still have 33,000 Superfund sites out there. I know the current administration just cleaned up 12, but something happened with six. So they're only going to get credit for six, but we still have 13,000 more to go. Now, these have been around for decades. So I think that somehow the system got corrupt or hijacked. I, I often wonder, was it by design or is something within an agency inept? Are they missing something? What's gone wrong? And it's very obvious something has gone wrong. And I just don't think we can continue to kick the can down the road. We have to have these conversations. Look, Aaron Brockwich came out almost. Well, I began my work almost 30 years ago. I started out there, I was 31, just turned 31, I'm now 60. That's 30 years since I began my work. But it's been 20 years since we've had this hexavalent chromium argument. State of California is still arguing it. We were gonna be the first state to set a standard for hexavalent chromium in drinking water. But we've been kicked back down in court because of feasibility studies. And we can never seem to bring the two together. You know, this is going to cost a company too much. Therefore, we do nothing. That will have to change. And we'll have to get in there and duke it out on feasibility studies. So here in California, we have a public health goal, which is what we're supposed to be following with chemicals in the water. But we'll set an MCL, maximum contaminant limit, which by law, should be set as close as possible to the public health goal, but we never do that. So on the upfront, it's always about money first. And on the upfront, it needs to be about infrastructure, safety, and people first. We've got to stop the idea that if you do that down the line, there is no profits for the company. Yes, there will be. And I can give you a whole lot of scenarios how that works out. So it's a system that started with good intentions for a whole host of reasons has been eroded over time. Now here we are with the big problem and the big picture. And we're going to have to find where those erosions are. And this is the beauty of law. We can reform things. We can challenge laws. We can learn from our mistakes and get in there with solutions that will take us into the future. That was so powerful. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I think when we well, talk you know, about- this is, this is where I'm like, I talk too much. I hear myself and I'm like, ah, this is why nobody <laughs> wants to invite me to a party. <laughs> no, I think this is great because, because you really do emphasize the fact that at the end of the day, these laws are supposed to protect people. It's not supposed to protect the lobbying firms and the big time yeah. corporations and the people who can pay to bend the laws at the end of the day, it's about people. And you do such an excellent job of mobilizing people and making sure that people realize within that sense of self that they feel empowered to advocate for their health, for their communities, for the safety of their families a lot of the time. And you do an excellent job of mobilizing people. So I would also love to talk a little bit about the steps that you lay out when it comes to logic, leverage, and loyalty. I thought that was so smart to put it in this little, uh, this great little action package for people. So when we talk about logic, to me, I understood it to be that you understand what's happening in your community. You say, wow, there's a lot of strange public health issues going on. And we also have someone dumping things into the water. So logic would just be like trusting your gut. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about perhaps the, the follow through. If someone does suspect 
some foul play in their water systems, how would you very simply recommend them to follow through and, and demand some action from local leaders? Logic is, and you are correct, it's guttural. It's your common sense set of skills. And we all have them. And I think we move away from them because we're always told, oh, you know, there is that no little voice in your gut and that's crazy. But it's true. And um, I grew up in Kansas. So I, I think of it this way. I could be outside playing and power of observation is part of common sense, is part of that instinct but we often let it go. I can tell you before a tornado is coming that we will have one. The air pressure is oppressive. It's heavy. Before a tornado, the sky will turn green. And I've often wondered what would make the sky turn that color. I'm like an animal. I sense it coming. And I could be outside playing and have a general idea. I better be like paying somewhat attention because something's not right. And when those sirens go off, it's not like I'm going to call the weather channel and ask them if it's an F4 or 5 because I don't care. I need to go to safety. So the power of observation, these common sense set of skills are life-saving. And I don't know why we... We're not taught about them, really. They are there, but we can move away from them. You know, a perfect example of this is Randy, the water operator, and we talk about him in the book, in Poughkeepsie, New York. So he started adding ammonia. He turned the ammonia feed on. There, there's a whole story in a conversation about adding ammonia to the water, but it creates a lot of problems. It creates a, a corrosive water system. If you have old lead pipes, it causes the iron, the lead, and the manganese to precipitate out. Adding ammonia creates another issue, and the consumer starts getting rashes. Um, it smells different. Uh, they have sores on their head. So what happened, and this is the power of the consumer, who is now going to become the regulator. That's where we are. The consumer is going to become the regulator. And they started calling. What are you doing? My skin burns. It ishes. I have a rash. You know, my eyes sting. What is it? So through the power of observation, Randy thought, what have I done different? He goes, I turned the ammonia feed on. So guess what he did? He turned it off. The phone stopped ringing. The consumer started complaining. So upper management came in and said, you got to turn that ammonia feed back on. As soon as he did, the phone started ringing. That's recognition of a pattern. They do not use ammonia anymore. They realized that it was deteriorating their already deteriorated infrastructure. And they weren't giving good potable water to the people. So common sense, power of observation, that's your logic. Recognize a pattern. The minute you feel it in your gut, don't just pass it off. Go, huh, what's going on? Logic. Leverage is what it says it is. And oftentimes we don't like to talk about leverage because we think it's a bad thing. You know, we're going to leverage money to bring somebody down, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> leverage is joining your community. You know, in mathematics, one plus one equals two. But what I have seen, the power of leverage, one plus one equals a thousand or 10,000 or more. Numbers, and you understand science, it's a numbers game. And it's one thing if one person in Hinkley was affected and it was just me and Roberta speaking. But when we leverage the community and suddenly now there's five, six, seven hundred of us speaking with a similar pattern, hello, that leverage gets you that recognition, the eyes on you, what's going on. Logic, leverage, loyalty. What is your loyalty? Well, this is something my mom taught me about. It's called stick to -itiveness. Its definition is noun. Propensity to follow through in a determined manner. Dogged persistence born of obligation and stubbornness. Ding, 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 ding. I have to tell you, stubborn is my middle name. Most everybody I know in my life can be very stubborn and dogged and persistent and determined. Loyalty is your stick to -itiveness. And you need, when you start your cause, See through it to the end. You know, my mom taught me, life will require you to have stick-to-itiveness. You have to develop the habit of persevering. 
even when you don't want to. And it would be easier to give up. Don't give up. When you get into a situation, you've got your logic figured out, you got your community, that loyalty is key. That is, you're gonna stick with it, you're in the game, you may get knocked down, expect it. Imagine a Super Bowl and you've got the ball and you rush 60 yards and then you pick it up again and you get pushed back 30. You don't throw the ball down on the field and walk off. Get back in there, pick that ball back up. Next time you may run 90 yards. Staying in the game is critical because the other side is gonna bank that they can push on you hard enough, you're gonna go away. But there's a key to that, and you got to take a break here and there and self-renewal. So if you lose that motivation, give that to yourself. Take a day, take a moment, take a beat, take a breath. Listen, I've thrown myself on the couch and, and bawled my eyes out. But allow yourself to do that so you can rethink strategies, um, find a moment to be quiet, to hear your voice. Uh, and when you do and you feel renewed, you'll get out there again tomorrow. I guarantee it. And lastly, we talk about logic, leverage, loyalty in the book, but there's another L. For me, it's your motivator. It's your why. And it's what gets us all up every single day. And it's called love. We love our health. We love our family. We love our homes. We love our water. We love our environments. We love our beaches. We love to breathe air. Yes, we can say it. People love to make money because they want to send their kids to college all of this. We love our country. We love freedom. These are our motivators. And, and I think we've gotten sucked into such, that we're so overwhelmed and such divisiveness. And the, the, the fight for clean water has become such hatred and, and you're, you're damaging a company or you're damaging jobs. That's not true. But we are a loving being. And more often than not, and sometimes we forget it. What is it that motivates you every day to get up in this crazy ass world <laughs> and go at it again tomorrow? My guess is because you love yourself, you love your kids, you love your spouse, you love your sister, your mom and dad. You want them to be healthy. You love your water. I mean, I could tell you every single day I get out, I go on the beach. I, that love just pours out of me when I see the dolphins jumping and swimming alongside a boat and I don't know the smell of the salt water and the air and the sunshine it's, it's magical that's just love yeah silly but it's true no it doesn't sound silly at all because you're completely right in saying that recognizing that love that you have for your health and for your water and for the well-being of your family that has to motivate you. And it also goes back to what you were saying about community and being able to say, you're trusting your gut and you think something, if you think something is fishy and something is going on that's compromising your health and your family and your community, there are other people around you who hold those same values. And everyone cares so. about their health. Everyone cares about their families. And no one is going to say, maybe my health is being compromised, but I'm just gonna let it slide. You know, if you're right. aware of those issues and you have that sense of, community that really gives bearing to your gut feelings and and sure. gives that little extra bit of confidence to say oh maybe what i'm feeling is correct and maybe what i'm suspecting is correct that love for health family all of these things that just continues to fuel you and it has to and i think the tip about giving yourself a break is so important in any aspect of life i mean it's hard to feel like if you are the activist or the advocate for one cause or one community or whatever it may be, if you have all this weight in your shoulders and you feel like you're not getting anywhere, it's yeah. so easy to feel like maybe I should give up. And I feel the climate crisis is a lot of the time just that same sense of like, yeah. is anyone listening to me? Am I speaking into a vacuum? Do I have the right to be here as an activist? Right. You know, so right. I think you touch on a lot of things that make a lot of sense for people. And, you know, politics gets in the way of our environmental issues, and uh, that bothers me. And, and I don't like to talk about it, but I am going to say something here. I was born and raised in Kansas by a Republican father who ran the pipelines for, Tex for Citigroup, Texaco, which it is now. And I didn't hear a message that was a party line. I heard a man, my father, and love, and what the environment was about. 
we shouldn't make this a right or left issue. This is all of our issues. And you'll never convince me that just the Democratic Party owns this and the Republicans don't, or that the Republicans don't care and only the Democrats do. I don't believe that. If we could take that argument and the divisiveness, what you have to go right or left to care about the environment is not true. It is just simply not true. It doesn't matter what your party affiliation is. You can care about your family, water, your environment, and this planet that we all call home. So I, I hope we, we remember that because I always see the politics getting involved. And I'm like, no, it, it's not owned by one side or the other. It's up for all of us. And, and I know down in Florida, you all sense such a great deal of that because year round it's you're out in the water and the ecosystem and the wildlife and the beauty and 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 the beaches and i've seen the pain i felt the pain when you have a toxic algae bloom and you can't get out on the water you can't get out in your boats you can't get outside to see the manatees just floating on the surface and dying it hurts us all so i hope we as humans can wake up to climate and water issues. And no matter what side of the aisle you're on, you can join in for us to collectively correct course. I think that that's an excellent note. And I, I like the idea of giving this power back to the people and saying that it's not a political issue. And you're, again, your gut feeling is correct. And you should believe and follow through with all of these things. And I also think that's an excellent segue into your legacy project of this mapping of health issues and community concerns for their water systems. And I want to hear a little bit about how you are creating a platform to really give people this power again and to really add some sense of confidence in those suspicions and those gut feelings. Well, so the map project started years ago and it's under a recreation. Again, people can go, it's just a very simple form, but on the back ends where we're having to make changes. My gosh, I must've started this 10 years ago. Uh, I'm very visual. And so if somebody sends me an email, my name is Sally and I live in Florida and concerned because my husband has a, a, a brain tumor, but it was noted by a neighbor that the other neighbor's child has a brain tumor. So you, you make a mental note of that. And again, because I'm dyslexic, I have a very photographic memory and I'm very visual. So, okay, that's so noted. Now, it could be several days later and I get another email from the same town. And I'm like, that's odd. So they're complaining, what a minute. What was that town last week? So I will go run a query on my emails. And lo and behold, it's not one or two, but there's seven people from the same town. Unbeknownst to them, they're all emailing me. That's your first like observation. That's that moment where it's like, hmm, that's odd. I'm sorry, I just think it's odd. And so what I started to do was plot it on a map. And I turned around one day myself and it was just a Google Excel, you know, Google Maps. And all of a sudden I had 350 dots on there and I'm like, oh my God. So I was looking at where people were reporting from and I did a super fun site overlay on it it was an identical match. So now I'm clearly seeing an area where something's going on. And we don't come back and follow through on communities. And communities move away. There's long latency periods. So you could move away and get a cancer. And that information is put into a database in the state in which you reside, not in the state where you're from. So what I started noticing on the map was if one person report, see, we can't find you or find a solution, right? If we can't see you, where are you? Well, I can start seeing you on the map, but then other people start seeing you on the map. And so, as you know, studying science and the degree you have is numbers. We're missing numbers. We're missing data sets. And we, the people hold that information, yet we give them no place to report that. We have cancer registries in every state but you can't share that with other states. So you might be missing the big picture. And so it was during the Obama administration that a young boy by the name of Trevor Schaefer and I spoke to Senator Boxer's uh, environmental committee. And he had brain cancer that he beat. His friends did not. He vowed to do something about it. 
I showed my map and they're like, uh, this is, why is nobody reporting this to us? Well, they're trying to report it somewhere, but they're not aggregating the information for you to see the big picture. So President Obama put in law under the Toxic Substance Control Act, Trevor's Law, which requires we have a national registry database. If we do that, you might start putting the dots together. And that shouldn't be a scary scenario. For me, that would be a hopeful scenario. I see you. It means cleanup. It means we could eradicate a chemical. It means we may find other groups within state by state and recognize, oh, what is the common denominator? Oh, maybe it was this exposure. Maybe we'll find science or medicine that, dare I say, a cure, certainly to make your life better. I mean, so this would be a, a place to look at, to see the big picture, find the solutions, and get out there and make that happen. I could see us if we did that and eradicated some chemicals. We could have this conversation in 20 years. Yes, I'll be 80, but I guarantee you I'm gonna be here. But we will see less disease. And it's amazing, when you have less disease and better health, you have a more productive society. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. You're firing me up, I have to tell you. <laughs> you are getting me so excited right now. Something that I really took away from that is to say, if there's an administration that says, wow, this information is available and it hasn't been made available to us, or we weren't aware of this, or why aren't we doing this yet? It really does take one person like Trevor to say, okay, we've got an issue. How are we going to make right. this a law? And it's so interesting to think that as the American public, you would think all of this infrastructure is already in place for representatives to be aware of the issues in their own communities. And it's not always the case. And I, I think that there is also this this trust that the government knows everything that they need to know to protect us or to make us safe. Again, not to be divisive, but it's not to say that anyone is out to get any particular community or just doesn't care about particular communities or whatever it may be. But it's to say that this infrastructure isn't always in place for the government to be aware of what's actually going on in the public health level. Mm -hmm. And even yeah, when we talk about regulating things and if you don't have those feasibility studies, they can't really properly regulate chemicals that are going into the water. And I think all of this just really does add to the holes that are in this American safety system, really. Right. And, and for people to realize they have a seat at that table, too. They oftentimes think they don't have a seat at that table because I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a politician. I'm not a scientist. Therefore, what? I didn't need any degree to tell you in Hinckley, two-headed frogs and green water was wrong. A huge part why I wrote the book, for you to understand that, not to assume, and that it doesn't have to be a blame game. We have issues, that's okay, we can change that. When I got involved in Hinckley, everybody told Ed Masry he couldn't do it. And Ed kind of bought that story. And after about nine months of work, he came in and we were sitting in his law library and he said, we're just not gonna be able to move forward. Then I said, why? And he explained the statute of limitations to me, which is statute of limitations, but I call it shit out of luck. And I'm like, so Ed, you know, I'm, you intrigued me because I guess we're just shit out of luck, but I'm sitting in your law library amongst thousands of books. Can you tell me how these laws came to be? Ooh, would that be because somebody challenged it? Could that be because somebody wrote it? Could that be because somebody said, oh, there's a loophole in it? There's a whole lot of reasons. Isn't that what we do is the law? It's not set in stone, right? And he looked at me and he said, I mean, he hates it when I do that. And Ed has passed on, but I could literally see his ears moving back. Two days later, he came back and he'd done some deeper legal work. And he wrote in the paper, in the pleading paper, within one year last past the community learned of the contamination, which was in fact true because see, they covered it up. They lied about it. So a lot of people never knew about it. So it was in the past year. Guess what? That got us through. I think you saw that scene in the film where the judge said, tell your client PG&E, we're going to trial. So there is, and this is for me what's exciting. We're waking up, we're seeing the issues and maybe the error of our way, maybe not. Maybe we just kicked the can down the road. Maybe we assumed somebody was going to save us. But I think we are waking up that saving the planet will require saving ourselves individually and not assuming and being a part 
of the conversation. And to do that, whatever your cause is, you need to have the right action tools to take the anger and the frustration into action and into play. So we can get this information to where it needs to be. And the movement will get that change to happen. That's numbers, that's power of people. And we hold the answer to that, especially if we give them a place to report to. We saw that happen in Fridley, Minnesota. Again, I'm, I'm moving around here about quite a few things, but I just, I always point out things in a conversation that I hope you can see visually. So Fridley, Minnesota, brought us up because they have TCE contamination. They have numerous Superfund sites there. And nobody was gonna sue anybody. It was too convoluted, too much money, never gonna happen. And they're like, what are we supposed to do? So they created a Facebook page years ago to let people know we're from Fridley, we have this problem, this kind of TCE, people are sick. And what they weren't expecting was two things that about 5,000 people had joined that Facebook group in a short period of time. But what was interesting of those 5,000 people that now found this Facebook page, because they had somewhere to report to, had moved away, didn't know what was happening. Of those 5,900 had cancer who grew up there. And if you look at it, the diseases were similar to those there. That's that missing number set I'm talking about. Those are 900 people from an area in Minnesota that never got reported to the state. So you miss it. You miss the data set. Well, Fridley stayed at it. TCE continued to exist. Another community got impacted. And this is what we talk about in the steps, putting the pressure on, find the truth, publicize it, work with media. They had a dogged reporter that got involved with that community. They'd never missed a beat. And I will tell you five months ago, the governor of Minnesota banned the use of TCE. Ding, ding, ding. So power to the people, power to the numbers, power to organizing your fight, getting your facts, staying in the game. And it took years but they did it. Wow. I have to say, <laughs> I know I've said it already that you're firing me up, but you were truly made to empower people. Like you do such <laughs> an excellent job of mobilizing and getting people excited about their rights and their abilities to really fight for their communities and fight for their public health. And you just have such a gift. And I have to say like, thank you so much for sharing that with the world because the more I think about the possibility of not having figures like yourself. So you've inspired a whole generation of activists, of, of individual people around the world, the Aaron Brockovich of China, the Aaron Brockovich of sea <laughs> turtles, whatever it may be, for your name to be used as a verb must be such an interesting, you know, much more it interesting. Weird. It's, a, it's probably weird, right? And I have to imagine that had there not been activists like yourself and people who were so inspired by your story that there would be a lot of gaps still in the public health system. And even beyond public health is when we're not talking about water, when we're talking about perhaps something just like the broader climate crisis, or if we're talking about, like we said, the Aaron Brockovich of sea turtles would be someone who is just really passionate about one particular species. And if people didn't get fired up about their passions in that way, that's just like not a world that I want to live in. I don't want people to just accept things at face value and not be able to fight for their rights and recognize that they do have a seat at the table. Even let's think about women. Let's think about the power of women in a lot of conversations and in a lot of workspaces. And had we not had people as vocal as they needed to be, we, you know, women as a whole would not be where they are today and where we're continuing to go. And anyway, I feel like I'm talking in circles, but I just want to say you have truly inspired a whole generation of activists and to some extent, that must be a little taxing. You must be like, oh, wow, this is a lot to hold up. Is that, do you feel like there's a responsibility there to just continue inspiring people? Or, or what, is that, what is that reckoning like for you? Well, a, a bit of that is Superman's not coming. And, you know, um, it would be impossible for me to think I'm superwoman and can save the world. <laughs> you know, I just don't believe in that. I do believe that I can be hopeful and inspirational. It's about understanding people 
And here's the thing. I am flawed. I am vulnerable. I have made mistakes. I feel I've been suppressed and kicked in the gut and judged and labeled and perceived because I was a blonde with big boobs that ran around in stilettos that just made me automatically stupid. That goes back to never judge a book by a cover. But I, I can't think of one of us that doesn't feel that we haven't been in that place. And I embrace vulnerabilities and I embrace flaws because I think that's where your greatest gifts are. And I took me a long time with my disabilities and flaws to learn to be okay with me. And I found that just accepting and hearing from another person what they're going through and that it's okay when they become okay, things start to change. And it's a process of really, truly believing in yourself. And I don't think I ever realized when Hinckley happened and the film came out that there would be so many environmental issues. And I don't think that I ever realized that getting into all those communities that we shared something in common where we oftentimes hid behind our flaws because there's this expectation we have to be this or that or perfect. And when we can let that guard down and be people and accept each other who we are and stop looking for the hero or Prince Charming or Superman to fix it, but turn that within yourself, it's contagious, it's empowering, that's what matters, that's what lies within. And if I can help you see that, then, then we'll get somewhere. Wow. Well, Erin, thank you so, so much. I think that would be an excellent note to leave off with. Uh, do you have anything that we didn't get to chat about today that you want to make sure is really included in the conversation? That's a perfect way to end it. Um, I hope for everyone to be included in the conversation. And, uh, and, and just remember, you don't have to be this or that to, to have an instinct to to trust in yourself. That's one thing we don't do. We don't want to be the first one in the classroom to raise our hand and, oh, we're wrong. I don't care. So what? I was wrong. Woohoo! <laughs> if you made a mistake, if you misspoke, you, you go out there again. And um, that's what it's just going to take. I, I, I think really, dare I say, my entire work has become being a cheerleader. Um, you know, I just believe in people and I see what they can do. I've watched what they can do. I hope the book shares what it can do. Superman's not coming isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing because I think you'll embark on a road of self-discovery and you'll re realize you could rise up and make that change after all. So don't look for the hero, be it. Oh my God, just listening to that back. It's so good. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Eco Chic with Aaron Brockovich. I truly cannot emphasize again how honored I was and how excited I was to have this conversation. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you learned a little something. And like I mentioned, you can pick up Superman's Not Here wherever you get your books. I will have some links in the show notes if you'd like to get in touch with me. And if you've made it this far, I hope that you're subscribed to Eco Chic again wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure that you rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Helps me out a lot. With that, I hope to see you soon. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you have a great week. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.